Good evening. He's hoping you're all very well. You've all had a fabulous week. So this is a challenge, of course, which is in many ways an opportunity for us all to get together and build some momentum and try and work through a particular process. At the very end of this challenge, at the very end of uh, this five-day event, there'll be an opportunity for you all to come together and talk and discuss and meet each other maybe as well. And the challenge is really about answering some questions. Um, that really is the best way for me to lead you into the depths of the Welsh storytelling tradition, for you to see for yourselves what it's like and what it means and the type of things that go on in Welsh storytelling. After every session, I'm going to expect you to go off, sit down, consider what we've discussed during the session and try and answer the questions that I'm going to be giving you. Uh, and therefore, it's going to be important that you can write down the questions and also write down your answers. Now, you might want to do all this just in your minds, and that's fine too. You don't have to write everything down, but I'm encouraging you to write it down, to note things down, because it helps sometimes. Just the physical process of writing stuff and seeing your thoughts on a page can help you formulate them and, you know, sort of work with them and revise them. As you're answering the questions I'm going to be asking you to consider, um, you're more than welcome to go off and do your own research, to find stuff out, to do some other reading, but you could also just do none of that and just come at it clean. And in many ways, there is something about coming at it afresh and not having any background knowledge and not having done any extra reading. That's totally fine too. As a challenge, it will work perfectly well if you know absolutely nothing about Welsh storytelling or about Celtic mythology or anything like that. It will just work if you just follow the events and try and answer the questions. Um, in this session, I'm going to begin by telling you the story of the story. I'm going to tell you the story of the Welsh oral storytelling tradition. I'm going to tell you what it's about in very brief terms. And then later on, I'm going to tell you the folk story we're going to be working with. Uh, and then I'm going to help you remember the story because it's actually quite crucial that you're not necessarily able to repeat the story back to me verbatim, but that you understand all of the moving parts, that you understand the sequence of the plot, what happens in the story, and that you can appreciate how it's been put together. Because storytelling, like any art, begins with a craft, yeah, the craft of putting together a particular sequence of events. Storytellers all over the world, especially very practiced ones, are experts at constructing stories. So it's important that when you're thinking of the story, you're also able to appreciate its construction, if you like, the way it's been put together, the nuts and bolts of it. And to really appreciate that, you need to be able to remember the story, remember the sequence of events. So we're going to be doing, uh, just following a very quick activity at the end of the session to help you do that. Um, great, there's loads of people here now. Um, now, what is the story of the story? Well, the story of the story really begins with the Mabinogi. Um, the the word Mabinogi uh, is actually taken from the title of one of the Great Welsh classics, the four branches of the Mabinogi, Petair Kainka Mabinogi. You can see there the manuscript 
version of it. This is the uh, one of the earliest copies we have. This is the very first story for anybody who can read medieval or middle Welsh manuscript. You'll see Poish Pendevig David Aoid and Argloid. Someone's put a lot of effort and a lot of work into copying this story into manuscript because it was a very, very valuable story. People really wanted to remember this stuff because it was important to them. And hopefully by the end of the session, you'll appreciate why perhaps storytelling uh, is such an important part of our culture. The four branches of the Mabinogi were probably first copied down around 900 or so years ago. Uh, sometime between 1060 and 1120 is the, the current thinking. And the four branches of the Mabinogi then, of course, go on to give their name to the broader collection of Welsh stories known as the Mabinogion. But don't get confused here because the Mabinogion, the 11 classics uh, of Welsh literature, are different. The Mabinogion, they're different to the four branches of the Mabinogi. The four branches make up a part of the Mabinogion, but it's a different category. Yeah? So the four branches of the Mabinogi were written down for the first time around 900 years ago, as far as we can tell. Um, but of course, we're going to be working with a folktale from roughly the 19th century. So why is that? Why am I using a folktale from... The 1890s is when it was first copied down, probably, you know, quite popular throughout the 1800s. Why am I using a folktale from uh, quite a late period to talk about the Mabinogi, as in the four branches of the Mabinogi? Well, the Mabinogi text that was copied down about 900 years ago arose in an oral storytelling setting. Whoever the unknown author was who copied them down for the first time didn't make them all up. They were working with traditional materials. They were working with a body of traditional law which had been evolving for at least a thousand years prior to them being written down. Uh, we're going to discuss in a moment how ancient certain aspects of the Mabinogi are, the four branches now. But of course, that storytelling tradition didn't stop evolving when the four branches of the Mabinogi were written down about 900 years ago. That storytelling tradition continued to evolve and it evolved into Welsh folktales. And the folktale that, that I'm going to be telling you this evening and the folktale that we're going to be working with throughout this challenge is a folktale that I consider to be in the tradition of the Mabinogi. It's in the tradition because it discusses very similar themes, it uses very similar uh, symbols, and it essentially conveys the same values and morals that we find in the four branches of the Mabinogi. It's essentially an evolved story from the same tradition. Yeah? Now, most people don't necessarily think of these folktales in that way, but I certainly do. Having worked with them for a fair few years now, um, I consider them to be part of the same culture of storytelling that existed in Wales, in Welsh culture, for as long as there's been Welsh culture. We could say that elements of the stories, elements of the four branches of the Mabinogi, are actually older than Welsh culture itself. Yeah, They've been inherited from the earlier culture which gives us Welsh. Just to dig around a little in the four branches of the Mabinogi, just to show you how old it can be, 
we can actually find in those stories elements which really belong in the Celtic Iron Age of around 2,000 years ago. So the Iron Age myths of the Celts of Europe clearly had an influence on the visual art of the Celts. Now, this is important because, as many of you probably already know, the Celts of the Iron Age, they did write some stuff down, but they didn't really like to write much down. They didn't really have their own writing system, as far as we know. They considered the oral nature of their tradition to be very important. As far as we can tell, the Druids, for example, believed that memory was a crucial component in human life uh, and it shouldn't be neglected. And that to write stuff down would be to somehow betray its spirit in some way. So when we have an oral culture such as that of 2000 years ago, they didn't write their myths down so we don't know what they are in terms of writing, but we can guess at what their mythology was by looking at the images that they left by looking at the very few inscriptions that they left. Now, some of the inscriptions and the images that they left do connect to the four branches of the Mabinogi, uh, which were written down a thousand years later. For example, we can think of the, the god Lugus. Lugus was a very popular god uh, throughout uh, the continent and the British Isles and Ireland. We find references to Lugus all over the place. Uh, this altar stone, which was found in Reims in France, is believed to be a depiction of Lugus. There you can see he's a, a threefold god, perhaps a god who sees the present, the past and the future would be one interpretation of, of what this image means. But you can see here that this is a stone carving of around 2000 years ago. Um, we know that Lugus was popular all over Europe because he left his name everywhere. Uh, the, the name Lugus, the name of the god, is commemorated in places such as Lugones in Spain, Ludan in France, Ludun in Scotland, Luton in England, and Dinlleil in Wales. So a very, very uh, widespread god. And of course, we find references to Lugus in the Irish tradition as well. So Lugus almost certainly evolves into the Irish Lu, probably better known in the story The Second Battle of Moichora, which could have been first copied down around the 9th century. We're not totally sure about that, but it's a very old story. And of course, in Wales, he appears as Llei, who is one of the main characters in the fourth branch of the Mabinogi, which is a Middle Welsh text, of, as I've said, of around the 11th century. So here we can see there is an ancient Iron Age god who survives uh, in probably the oral culture of Ireland and Wales and evolves into these two very important mythological characters, uh, Lu in the Irish tradition and Llei in the Welsh tradition, preserved in the four branches of the Mabinogi. Now, we're not sure if the stories connected with Lu and Llei in Ireland and Wales are a decent reflection of their mythology as the earlier god Lugus. We don't really know that, but we can guess that some influence, some of the myth has survived into these two characters. Their names for certain connect them to this earlier Lugus, yeah? 
Now, by the time we get to the four branches of the Mabinogi, it's not totally clear that medieval Welsh people considered the characters in the four branches, such as they, to be gods. There are no altars or shrines or any dedications carved in stone or wood or any material commemorating or uh, sort of worshipping these figures as gods in the medieval period. Now, of course, the, the very fact that there was um, a, a very dominant Christianity at the time meant that all other forms of belief uh, had to hide, essentially, uh, and it would have been very dangerous for people to claim to be of another faith or another belief. So it's there are good reasons why we can't find signs of these uh, devotional relationship to gods. But we do know that some folk characters, such as Gwynapnid, for example, in Wales, were worshipped, they were prayed to, they were regarded as gods. So we know that people did have these relationships with mythological figures outside of Christianity in the medieval period. We just can't say for certain that any of the characters in the Mabinogi were re regarded in that way. It's very difficult to say that for certain. It's also worth saying that not all of the characters in the four branches um, are necessarily gods or deities. Some of the characters are mortals, and it's important that they're mortals because someone needs to play the mortal role in relation to the immortals. Yeah, The Mabinogi are really stories about the relationship between nature and supernature, between the mortals and the immortals, those in time and those out of time. Those are the, the crucial concepts in the four branches. Very briefly, what we have in Welsh storytelling is an evolving tradition that has its roots in the distant past that we find in, in the four branches of the Mabinogi as some kind of snapshot, uh, a very quick photograph taken of the condition of the storytelling tradition in Wales about 900 years ago, just one author's view of it. And then, of course, the storytelling tradition continues to evolve and we get to the modern period where the same tradition is discussing very, very similar concepts and themes. Again, the relationship between nature and supernature, between those in time and those out of time, and discussing a similar morality, a similar set of concepts that we find in the four branches of the Mabinogi. I'm not claiming that the mythology has remained the same throughout that whole period. But this is clearly quite a conservative tradition, and we can say with some degree of confidence that the major themes and elements probably did persist for long periods of time. We don't know how long exactly, because there's not enough evidence to say that conclusively, but we can say pretty confidently that it was generally the same for long periods of time. And we certainly find similarities between the folktale we're going to be looking at in this session and the four branches of the Mabinogi. For those of you who followed the Mabinogi course already, you'll know what I'm talking about. You'll know that there is a great degree of similarity between uh, these these various texts. I'm often using later folk tales to illustrate themes in the four branches. Let me share the screen with you so you can see where I'm talking about. I want to show you where the story happens. Yeah, here you can see a map of Western Europe, and the story that we're going to be 
looking at is about the Llyn Barvog. And the Llyn Barvog is in mid-Wales. There it is. Now, a Llyn Barvog does mean bearded lake. And that's because, as far as we can tell, it's because of the amount of rushes and and growth that's around the lake. Just let me show you roughly where it is in Wales. So here we have a Llyn Barvog, which is in the hills overlooking the Dovey Estuary. The Dovey Estuary is an amazing place. I've lived in this area for a long time now. I do love it down here. And I suppose the big mountain for us here in in this area is Cadridris. Some amazing finds, archaeological finds, have been made on Cadridris as well. But you can see there where Athin Barvog is. And the story that I'm going to be telling you is not just about Athin Barvog, but is also about the farm down in the valley. So this is Athin Barvog, the bearded lake. And this is the farm, the Sarnant which is uh, involved in the story. So, the story of Llyn Barvog. So the common folk of Wales, who we call the Gwerin, they believed many things about the land that they worked and lived upon. They believed that the world was alive in mysterious ways that couldn't always be explained. One of their beliefs was that high mountain lakes could be entrances to Anoven, Anoven, the deep other world of spirits and immortal beings, the place where the Tulwith Teg, the fair folk, lived. These special lakes were also the home of the Grakedd Anoven, the women of Anoven, the women of the other world, who could sometimes be seen all dressed in green herding their shining white fairy cattle across the mountains, accompanied by their shining white hounds, the Corn Anoven, the Hounds of Anoven. And this was a common belief here in the area where I live, here in Mid-Wales, in the Dovey Valley. But the belief that high mountain lakes were the entrances to the other world is, of course, found across Wales, particularly in the north for some reason. Many, many stories concerning fairy brides arising out of lakes and marrying shepherds up in the hills. Now, one of these special lakes, the Llyn Barvog that I've just showed you, it's not far from where I live, up in the hills on the northern shore of the Dovey Estuary, not far from Machynlleth. And this special lake was believed to be the home of one of these Gragedd Anon, a woman of the other world. And she was sometimes seen on the high crags above the lake, tending her fairy cattle as they grazed the high pastures. But whenever a local shepherd caught sight of her, he was never sure if he was looking at a woman dressed in green or an old blackthorn bush or a little lithe willow bush or just a sudden shape in a mountain stream, there for an instant and then gone. No one really knew if the women of Anoven were real or not, or whether folk were just seeing things. Now, one of the old hill farmers from this area, Thomas Abergrais, 
He's been dead now about 130 years, but Thomas Abergreis used to tell a particular story about this fairy woman who used to live in the Bearded Lake, which goes something like this. In the valley below the Bearded Lake is a farm called the Sarnant. Now, a long time ago, before Thomas Abergreis was even born, the farmer of the Sarnant, that little farm I showed you, would graze his Welsh black cows on the slopes around the Bearded Lake, and every now and again these cows would find themselves grazing alongside what appeared to be the shining white fairy cattle of the lake. On one occasion, the farmer of the Sarnant was watching his cattle by the lake when a sudden beam of sunlight struck the surface of the lake and blinded the farmer for a moment. When he opened his eyes, he could see white dots dancing. And as his sight came back, the shining dots resolved into the most beautiful white cows he'd ever seen. Now the farmer of the Sarnant was a very intelligent and cunning man, and he knew that those shining white fairy cows produced the most delicious milk. One day, the white fairy cows and his Welsh blacks were grazing together, and the farmer had an idea. He began herding his cows down to the farm and, accidentally on purpose, herded one of the fairy cows along with them. He led them down to the yard where he led the docile white cow to a milking stall. Speaking gently to her, Araba, 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 Nati, Nati, speaking very gently, he took a stool and began milking the fairy cow. She was surprisingly willing, and the farmer milked her, and milked her again and again and again, until he had gallons and gallons of beautiful, warm, sweet milk. Never had the farmer tasted such sweet milk before. He couldn't believe his luck. Over the following weeks and months, the farmer discovered that the milk of the fairy cow made the most amazing butter and cheese, and on market day in Machantleth on a Wednesday, he was always sold out well before lunchtime. The other market traders began eyeing him jealously. In time, the farmer became fabulously wealthy. His butter and cheese was renowned and even people from as far away as Birmingham would travel to Machantleth just to buy this amazing produce. Some people even said the cheese had healing properties, and others even went and rubbed it on their rheumatic knees and hips and warts and even up... Well, let's not go there. Through all of this, the fairy cow herself seemed contented to stay on the farm, and she had many calves who themselves grew into fabulously productive cows who themselves had more calves until the farmer had a whole herd of white fairy cattle, all daughters of that one original fairy cow. And if he was rich at the beginning of the story, he was even richer now. 
But as the years went by, not only did the farmer become fabulously wealthy, he also became intensely greedy. He thought often of the source of his great wealth, the fairy cow. And even though she hadn't aged a day since he'd first milked her, he began to think she must surely be past her prime. So why not squeeze the last penny he could from her and fatten her up for the kill? November was coming. He would be slaughtering animals he didn't want to feed over winter. Why not? Now, being a fairy cow... And so abundant and productive in all things, when the farmer started fattening her up for the kill, she ate and ate and ate and ate the extra feed until she was enormous. She was so big, she could no longer fit in the milking stall. The farmer was, of course, overjoyed, thinking how much money he would make from all that beautiful tender beef. The day of slaughter finally arrived the 22nd of October. And all of the local families turned out to watch the killing of the great fairy cow. The butcher had sharpened his knife. The cow, now tethered, munched happily on some straw. Everyone watched as the butcher approached. A hush fell upon the assembly as they watched the butcher raise his arm, ready to strike. But before he could give the killing blow, the butcher's arm was suddenly paralysed. He appeared to be struggling against some invisible force that had stayed his hand. The next moment there was a piercing shriek. I Everybody froze as the terrible sound reverberated down the valley. Then they all turned to look from where the sound had come and high up on the rocky outcrop beside the bearded lake they could see... something. Was it an old blackthorn hunched in the wind? Was it just a glimmer of sunlight on the green hillside? Or was it a woman? A woman, all dressed in green, with her arms raised to the sky. Now many people turned pale. And one old woman fell on her backside. A young farmhand fainted. An old man farted. And a young baby began laughing uproariously. Dogs howled. Cats hissed. Bees woke up. Fish flung themselves out of the river in despair. And goats invaded washrooms and began eating bed linen. It was bedlam and chaos. And then, all of a sudden, there was silence. All the living things in the valley, seen and unseen, were listening in that long moment. Nothing could be heard, apart from the chuckling of the happy baby, of course. Then beginning as no more than a whisper, but gaining steadily in strength, the assembled families could hear the strange woman 
upon the rocks, singing a slow song. Tere di velenignon Kirn kaveljorn Breithelin Arvoildoti Kotto which roughly translates as Come, yellow anion, stray horns, speckled one of the lake, and the hornless dotin, arise, come home. No sooner had these words of power been sung than the fairy cow and all of her daughters to the third and fourth generations began racing back toward the bearded lake. The farmer, suddenly realising that the source of his wealth was escaping before his very eyes, started after them, losing his best hat as he ran. But no fence, no hedge, nor ditch, nor bank could keep back the white tide of fairy cattle as they rushed up the hillside, hopping like birds from crag to crag and scampering effortlessly up towards their mistress, their mother, their keeper, all dressed in green, the Graig Anoven swinging her arms gently in the wind. As the farmer made it to the top of the crag that overlooked the lake, he was puffing and panting, sweat pouring down his beetroot face. But he was too late. In the middle of the lake stood the grey Ganoven, the woman of Anoven, turning slowly, and all the fairy cows, like some enormous bovine mandala, turning around her. The farmer could do little but groan as he watched them all slowly descending into the enchanted lake. Now, according to Thomas Abergrai, the original storyteller, from then on, the fortunes of the Sernand's farm changed drastically. The following winter, the roof blew off the farmhouse and some of the best pastures became permanent bog. Within a few years, the farmer was worse off than he had ever been, and spent the rest of his days in poverty and misery. But, if you're ever up by a thin barvog by the bearded lake, especially at night under a full moon, if you peer down into the depths of the water, you will see a faint glow. And if you listen carefully, you will hear the murmuring of a distant song as the lake lady sings to her shining cows. Do you remember the song? Do you remember the song that she sang? Now, this story is not just a story. All good stories are far more than a simple description of events. Below the surface, there is often a faint glimmer to be found. Thank you very much.
So there you have what appears to be a very simple folktale. But in truth, it's actually quite a complex story. There's a lot going on there. I don't want you to think that it's far too simple for us to ponder or interpret. There's plenty there, believe you me. Now, before we can progress with this challenge, before we can really get to grips with it, I really need you to understand the story. I need you to be able to remember it. The first thing we're going to do is I'm going to split you up into groups of five, and I'm just going to get you to recount the story yourselves. Can you remember what happened? So, thank you all very much. Welcome back. Any questions there? Okay, so this is June Ruth Canonico from Massachusetts. We were wondering at the very end when we got cut off, why did the fairy, oh, your Welsh word for it, allow the farmer in the first place to get that white cow? Because if she hadn't, we wouldn't have a story. Very, very simply. They're, they're, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. It's, there's a good point to be made here, which is that... Um, so we often approach stories as if they're attempting to emulate or to be a representation of, of the real world, of the natural world. But what we're actually looking at, in many ways, is a storyteller trying to convey a message. And to ensure that the message is conveyed... Uh, it's very important that the storyteller is allowed to play a little with reality and to sort of, you know, skew things in a way. So that's my answer to you. Don't question the narrative too much. The reality of the narrative or how it corresponds to reality isn't important. It's a symbolic meaning that's important. But we'll cover more of that. You've sort of, you've jumped the gun. Brilliant question, but we've, you've jumped the gun a little bit, I'm afraid. Uh, we've got Elizabeth Anderson as well. Uh, do you want to ask a question, Elizabeth? Yes, it's really a, a general question. The Celtic gods, such as Lugas, were they gods of any particular area, power, or were they just divine beings? As far as we know, they are very much regional gods or gods of place. Um, although we do find some very, very, excuse me, some very popular gods uh, in the historical record. Epona, for example, was well uh, highly regarded amongst the Celts and so highly regarded by the Celts, the Romans fell in love with the two and she ends up pretty much everywhere. And then we've got gods like Lugus, for example, who are very popular. But we also have many individual gods that we know almost nothing about apart from their names, uh, who appear to be very local. So I think that there is a longer conversation to be had about what do we mean by a god or goddess uh, in particular, by the divine. What do we mean by that? because I don't think it always corresponds that neatly to the classical conception of divinity. Uh, I think that there are other ideas that we need to discuss too. But I hope that answers your question, Elizabeth. I'm going to take a couple more. Thank you, Elizabeth. Good question. Um, anybody else? We've got Richard Craven there. Do you want to go for it, Richard? Unmute yourself, please. I was wondering if 
each of the lakes had their own uh, Lady of the Lake, if you will, uh, or was she like just one, but she was able to manifest in whatever lake she wanted to. If we consider that these ladies of the lakes are in many ways an evolution of the earlier deities and divinities of place, and this is of course my opinion, other people are going to have different takes on this, but I would say that she is in many ways the spirit of that place in particular. She's the spirit of that lake. She's the spirit of that place as experienced by the people in the area, yeah? It depends, again, what you mean by, um, you know, the Lady of the Lake or by the idea of a divinity. Is this an archetypal representation in culture uh, or is it something else? Um, depends what you believe in, I suppose. But they're, in my opinion, and I think most people would agree, that they are very regional. They're specific to these places. And the Lady of the Lake, as we find her in these stories aren't necessarily like local variations of a greater goddess. They really are the totality of that place, I would say. Yeah. Um, but again, that's my opinion. Other people are going to have different opinions. I'm just going to go for one more question. Uh, we've got Jackie Burgess. Do you want to unmute yourself, Jackie? Thank you. Um, it's just lovely. Uh, I live in Ireland, although my... Um ancestry is Welsh um, and we have I, I was interested in what you were just saying about about um, in, in Ireland we have Lou who is associated with the sun very much uh, and and I'm very interested in the lady of the lake because we also have lots of well particularly river goddesses here um, but very much and well 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 maidens and uh, there is this interesting Kind of connection with the element of water as there's that numinous place of, and i wondered if you could say anything about um about whether whether you feel that elemental quality is 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 significant in the story the fact that the cow the cattle are, are are called back into the lake into this you know they return to well i, I suppose i felt it was like being returned to some sort of feminine um original elemental force or something that was part of the fairy. It absolutely is. Yes, Jackie. And this is going to be part of our conversation later on in, in this series. Um, very briefly, um, the, the public talk I gave last week on Facebook Live touches on uh, the Well Maidens, uh, and the notion of um, the divine feminine associated with springs and fountains in particular. And of course, the the Dovey, which is the great river that runs just to the south of um, the Bearded Lake, is one of the estuaries down which the infant Taliesin uh, flows out to sea. So in many ways, the Dovey is one of the great rivers associated with another one of our great mythological figures and goddesses, Keridwen. So there, there is that connection in this area too. Obviously, water has a great symbolic potency 
and it is a central part of many mythologies, not just the Celtic. And it's definitely something that we're going to talk about. But I don't want to do it now because I don't want to I don't want to spoil that conversation for you later on because it is an interesting one. But for anybody who didn't watch the Facebook Live I did last Tuesday, you can go to the Facebook Live, uh, the Celtic Source Facebook Live page, and you can watch that discussion there. It's about a f- half an hour, forty minute discussion, uh, talking through the the different um the different types of of sacred waters we have in the celtic tradition essentially but connected specifically with this idea of sovereignty and it does bear on our conversation here because what we have in the lake ladies in many ways are these very regional folk versions of sovereignty goddesses they are sacred uh, feminine divine principles in these places yeah they're they're spirits of place uh, for certain but we'll leave that for the time being jackie if that's okay i don't want to go too far there so to finish i want to leave you with some questions to ponder and these are relatively straightforward questions and uh sort of a you know an easy walk in to the landscape of the story if you like but they're important questions to have clear answers on because these questions will set you up for uh, a deeper understanding of the story. As we discuss the story uh, next Tuesday and then next Wednesday, and then we'll have our big discussion on Thursday, these questions will really provide the framework for your further adventures uh, in the landscape of the story. So just very quickly, These are the four questions I want you to consider. And you don't have to give lengthy thesis-like answers unless you really want to. But the first question, kind of an obvious one, is who acts immorally in the tale? Who is the immoral actor? Rather obviously the farmer. But the question is why? And I want you to be clear on why. Very important that you're clear why the farmer is an immoral actor in the tale. Then I want you to ask yourselves, who acts morally in the tale? And why? Why is this character acting morally? What is the motivation for the action? And then, interestingly enough, there is one character, let's say, in the tale, who is morally neutral who is not necessarily swayed or partakes of the moral positions taken by the other two characters. They're kind of a neutral character. Why are they neutral? What does that mean, not necessarily for their motivation, but what does it mean for our understanding of the story that they are neutral? So already here you can see that we have a basic structure in the story where we've got two moral positions which are very distinct and then a third moral position in between them, yeah? And then, of course, the obvious question to ask is, what is the moral lesson of the tale? Now, these are pretty straightforward questions. I don't think you're going to have any uh, great difficulty answering um, each of them. Please answer them in as detailed a fashion as you can. As you're answering them, you may find that you're led to other considerations and other interpretations, particularly that third question there. Who is morally neutral in the tale and why are they neutral? 
There's, of course, a, a, a storytelling function for that neutrality. Something needs to stand in between these two moral positions. Something needs to communicate between them. But why? Why is that important for the story? Why is that important for our understanding of what the story means? Bit of a puzzle there for you, but hopefully you'll be able to find your way into it. And then what is the moral lesson of the tale? Now, of course, we're going to be doing the second session in the Facebook group. So it's very important that you also join the Facebook group. And the Facebook group can be found here. So if you just go to facebook.com forward slash Celtic source forward slash groups, you'll see the Celtic source group there and you need to click join and either myself or my good friend uh, Diane, who helps me with the page, will let you in. So I'll be going live into that Celtic Source private group on Tuesday, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. my time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We'll be going live for about 20 minutes to discuss more of this tale. We'll take another step into the lake, if you like. We'll take another step into the depths. Also, all of these sessions are going to be recorded. This session will be posted in the Facebook group. If you have any friends that you think would like to take part in the challenge, they can still join the Facebook group, watch this video uh, and take part that way. If you have any questions, feel free to message me over Facebook or to email me responding to the email I sent you with this Zoom link. Feel free to do that too if you have any questions. Otherwise, I will leave you to your pondering and your meditation, uh, and I'll see you same time uh, on Tuesday. Okay, so deal chavariyaun. Have a good afternoon or a good evening, wherever you are, and I'll see you then. Nostar.